We are beginning a series together. And so before I explain it, I'm going to give you a a, a little bit of lead time. You want to grab your Bibles and go to the book of Hosea. Some of you, that may take a little while. If you you kind of open your, your Bible to the middle, you're going to end up probably in Psalms or Isaiah or Proverbs or somewhere in there. Kind of turn to the right. If you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. Head back. Um, this morning, we're starting in the book of Hosea, and we're going to do a series on the minor prophets. Those are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They're called the minor prophets, not because, you know, major league, minor league prophets, these guys are just hoping to be as good as Jeremiah and Isaiah someday. They're called the minor prophets actually because of the length of the book uh, that's written. Now, That being said, today we begin with Hosea, which actually has 14 chapters in it, and so I'm about to try to accomplish the impossible. I'm about to try to preach all 14 chapters in 25 minutes, and if I don't make it, there's a dunk tank here for me, and you just throw me right in. Now, this morning, we're going to celebrate at the end of our service with the baptism of a number of people, and so we want to make sure we take appropriate time to celebrate that, not rush through that, right? So, and I'm not going to rush through scripture. I am going to do something I normally don't do, though. As we're walking through, I will say the references in Hosea, and actually I will have them put up on the screen for you. Uh, you can take notes, you can turn to them, whatever's going to be best for you, but I, I want to make sure that, that you're seeing that I'm not just quoting things um, from somebody else. This is actually from God's Word, okay? So here we go. Crazy part, Hosea. Uh, Hosea, kind of give you a little background of the book. We know almost nothing about the man Hosea, who is the fellow who wrote the book. We do know um, that, that he was um, prophesying during the days of the kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, those, those kings of Judah. And then the kings in Israel were Jeroboam, was Jeroboam, the son of, of Joash. So we know that about him, and that's pretty much all we know. So that, that gives us a rough date around 700, 800 BC-ish, somewhere in there, okay? So this is about 3,000 years old, give or take a couple hundred years which after 3,000 years, I mean, what's another 100 years, right? Um, so, so Hosea's writing in about that time. That's about all we know. We know in, the, in the, the kingdom of Israel, in the northern kingdom, we know that things are going very, very well. Now, that's an oddity, because a lot of times when you read, particularly you read the Old Testament, and you're looking through the story of the kings, and you're like, oh, the, and they sinned, and things were going badly, and the people did what was right in their own eyes, if you look at the book of Judges, and, and you continue to see those things cycle. But, but at this moment of the writing of the book of Hosea, things are going great. But there's a problem. And so I'm going to begin in Hosea chapter 4. And I want to paint the picture of the problem, and then I'm going to go back and talk about the illustration that God uses in the book of Hosea. The problem is seen, look at Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, he says this. This one's not going to be on the screen. Not all of them will be on the screen. If I, that, yeah, sorry. False advertising. Oh, dunk them. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Hosea chapter 4, he says this in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Uh, just by way of comment, that's never good news. <laughs> and here's his controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery, and they, they break all bounds, and bloodshed just follows bloodshed. So, so when I say things are going well, obviously I'm not talking about their relationship 
with God. If you skip down to verse seven, this was God's judgment on the people. They, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. So the, 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 the book of Hosea is written in a context of time where things are going very well, and from God's words himself in verse seven, the people are increasing, but the difficulty is as the people are increasing, they're continuing to forget God. And so the, 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 the argument that God has against these people is that God has done amazing things for them, and yet, so Hosea chapter 11 says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I have called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and and burning offerings to idols. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is another name for Israel. It was I who, who taught Ephraim to walk. It was I who took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I was the one that healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I, I even picture this. God himself says, and I, I bent down to feed them. What king do you know? would walk the streets of his kingdom and find children running in the streets and get down on his knees and, here, you look hungry, let me feed you. There's no king like that. There's a God like that. God says, listen, you you need to understand, this is how I treated you. I treated you as my children. I I taught you how to walk. I mean, he he talks about how he he, he took them up by their arms, and they they didn't know that they were the ones that, he was the one that had healed them. He talks about how I was leading them with cords of kindness, and and I was leading them with bands of love. I mean, the picture is I taught them to walk. It's the picture of daddy, right? Daddy's standing over his child who's just learning to walk, and and you learn quick. Fingers aren't going to cut it. You got to go to thumbs. They're stronger. You put the thumbs out, the little dude's grabbing onto the thing. And, and you're the one leading them around, right? I mean, now, I was surprised as a young dad. I mean, I was still, I mean, I'm still pretty much a physical specimen. Don't get me wrong. But I was, I was still pretty much in shape when Jordan was just learning to walk. But I remember distinctly those days after this kid just wants to walk everywhere. And you're leading him around, being done with it and standing up being like, oh, my back. I am, this is hard. And God says, I, I'm the one that taught Israel how to walk. God has done amazing things for you. And yet you you forget about him. Wait, amazing things? Okay, so he taught them how to walk. He fed them. But, but let, me, let me, he says that. That's a good philosophy. That's a good painting of the picture of who God is. But let's talk, let's talk reality. How did he do that? Seriously, how? The children of Israel were in captivity in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. He crossed the Red Sea. That's a big deal, but I'm just going to skip it because how crazy is that? That God did such amazing things that the Red Sea kind of pales in comparison at times. He led them through the Red Sea, and then the people are like, oh, we're so hungry. And like a father, he says, you're hungry? 
All right, every morning you're going to wake up and you're going to walk out of your tents and you're looking at the ground and there's going to be bread covering the ground. And it's not, and it's, it, it's going to be carbohydrate free. Uh, no, just kidding. It was back before carbohydrates were sin. Um, so pick, take the bread and pick it up and it's going to be bread for you. It's going to be sweet to the taste. Oh, I'm so sick of this bread that keeps falling from heaven. God, being a merciful father, says, really? What do you want? Oh, we want meat. Fine. Every mo- You're going to look out and there's going to be quail everywhere. You just reach out, grab one, bring it home, cook it however you want. There you go. Now you have meat. We're thirsty. Water from a rock. Chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 say, I took care of you in the wilderness. In that dry and thirsty land, but, but when you had eaten and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. Think about it. Every morning, bread covering the ground, you can take it, you can eat it. It's, it's sufficient for that day. It's enough to get you through that day. Now, it's very interesting, we go to a whole other message about that, but it's very interesting that they weren't allowed to collect for the future days, but you know why that is, right? Because if they were to collect for the future days, it would rot. Why would God do that? Because then they wouldn't need God. So every day they walk out, there it is. There it is, we're hungry. Meat, there it is. Water, there it is. We're completely taken care of, we're completely taken care of. And where did their hearts go? Man, we wish we were back in Egypt where life was good. What? I took care of you in the wilderness, in that dry and thirsty land, but when you had eaten and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. How prosperous Israel is. A luxuriant vine loaded with fruit. But the richer the people get, the more pagan altars they build. The more bountiful their harvests, the more beautiful their sacred pillars. God says, this is, my, this is the controversy I have with my people. Is as I continue to provide for them, they're taking my provision and they're sacrificing it to an idol. I give them a great harvest and they lay it on, on the sacred pillars for this false god. Um, I, someone said this in the past couple of weeks, and I have not been able to get it out of my head, and it just happened to work its way into the message this morning. And I'm going to ring this bell a couple times. It comes down to this. One of the greatest theological truths of all Scripture that we can all understand is this. Sin makes you stupid. There it is. In fact, it's even more than there. Look at Hosea chapter 4, verse 12. They ask a piece of wood for advice. They think a stick can tell them the future. I mean, longing after idols has made them stupid. They have played the prostitute serving other gods and deserting their God. It, it really is the picture. This is how stupid sin can make you. All right, stick, who am I going to marry? Hello? Wrong stick. All right, stick. 
Who am I going to marry? Now, now there's other prophets who speak of this. It's really interesting. They say they take the, the, the branches and they break them in half. And wow, are they smart because they know which end to worship and which end to throw in the fire. Sin makes you that stupid, that foolish. And God looks at his people and he says, man, I have every right to call you out. As I look at you, I am seeing you completely ignore all of the provision that I've given to you. So God has every right to call you out, Israel. People who are sitting in Uniontown Bible Church right now. Oh, but we're not worshiping sticks. Well, that's good. That means that you're a varsity level idol worshiper instead of a junior varsity level idol worshiper. Frank, you can check my backyard. I don't have any idols there. I I know. It's very, this is one of those things. Actually, sin is always like this. It's easier for us to see it in other people than to see it in ourselves. It's easier for us to read the Old Testament and read verses like Hebrews 4, or sorry, I keep saying Hebrews, Hosea 4.12, um, where they're worshiping sticks and be like, fools! And then sacrifice our family, our finances, our integrity in order to gain a promotion at work. <laughs> it's easy for us to look at one who would worship a shrine and ignore the fact that in the heart of our hearts, in the depths of our soul, we would sacrifice our morals for a relationship. And I've said it before, and this is, this is the best understanding of idols that I can, I can fashion in my head and understand. Because it is, it's not as obvious anymore. We don't have the shrines, we don't have the, the altars, but what we have is, is our thoughts. And so when you think about it, it really comes down to this. What is the thing that, that you lose sleep over? Who is the person that you leave, lose sleep over? What, what, what is it that you spend your money on more than anything else? What does your checkbook reflect? What person is it that you're spending more money on than any other? What is it, possession-wise, or what person is it that would cause you uncontrollable emotions if you were to lose it, or them? Or even the idea of losing it, or them, gives you those emotions. As you find moments during your day to stop and daydream, maybe it's even driving your car, where does your mind run to most frequently? If you were to walk through your life in those four categories and assign people or things, possessions, and you find a consistent string, my friend, you you found your idol. What fools are we to worship anything but the Creator God? We are Romans 1 type fools. We have have given up the glory of God and instead of worshiping him for all that he is and his holiness and his righteousness, we have worshiped everything he has created and we have actually elevated what he has created above the creator. We're like kids at Christmas who get the gift that we want and mom and dad are like, we love you so much, we want you to have this and they they take their gaming system or they, they take their dolly or they take their fire truck or whatever it is and they hightail it out of the room all the while mom and dad are like, 
You're welcome. We do that with God. In our enlightenment, in our wisdom, we've become fools because sin makes you stupid. And that level of sin in us, it gives God every right to call us out. Now, God calls his children out in Hosea. I mean, when you, when you understand his holiness, when you understand the amazing things that he's done for you, when you, you understand the depth of, and seriousness and the severity of your unfaithfulness to him, it can't surprise you when he calls you out. Hosea chapter 13, verse 7 These words are stark, but they certainly shouldn't surprise us. I am going to be to them like a lion. And like a leopard, I'm going to lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear who has been robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. See, Israel, he destroys you because you are against me, your helper. It seems harsh. But God has every right to call us out. Because we are those fools who worship at pagan altars. But the message of Hosea is is deeper than just the judgment of prophecy. The the message of Hosea continues so that even in the midst of an appropriate judgment, even in the the middle of of a righteous anger and indignation that is going to come from God on the people who have turned their back on him, even in the middle of that, there is a a mercy and a compassion and a a love that, that calls you out. Because even in the middle of calling you out, he says this, look at Hosea 11, 8. That says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Israel, how can I give you up? How can I hand you over? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim are two towns that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. Those places that have become synonymous with God's judgment. God's talking to his people in a tender-hearted way. He's like, man, my, my, my calling you out is appropriate. It's right, and I should bring great judgment against you. But when I consider it, how, how can I? Ephraim. How can I give you up? How can I treat you like those who have rebelled against me from the very beginning? You're mine. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So, is God all love? Is God all judgment? The answer to that is no, God is all God. (laughs) And he's pure and perfect love. He is pure and perfect judgment. And the problem is, is we try to reconcile that in our head. It gets difficult, doesn't it? Because 
I mean, come on, three pounds of flesh inside this skull is never going to be able to comprehend what is the perfect love and perfect judgment of God. And so what God does in the book of Hosea is he gives us a picture to help us reconcile that. And what he does is he tells us a love story. Now, when you hear about a love story, you probably think something like Romeo and Juliet or good names like that, right? But no, our love story has two main characters and their names are Hosea, he's the the handsome dashing fella, and his bride, Gomer. Because when you think romance, you think Gomer, right? Yeah. That's a love story right there. I think that's, that's, that's a little joke that I don't think God had in mind when he wrote it, but that's all right. I'm going with it for a long time. So the name is actually the least of, of Hosea's worries when it comes to Gomer. God calls Hosea a prophet to do something with his life to help him paint the picture of his message. So, you know, I love preaching. I love what God's called me to do. And I love the fact that, that if God's called me to do it, he's called me to prepare to do it. And so God's called me to preach. And so God called me through school. God called me through this. God called me to read. God called me to spend time studying. God called me to spend time on my face praying. I love that. I love that God's called me to do those things in order to accomplish the ministry that God's called me to do. I don't know that Hosea was feeling the same way when he received the call from God. I want you to prophesy, Hosea, but, but you're not going to just prophesy. You're not just going to speak. My brother, you're going to live this. You're going to, you're going to live this. And so, so what happens is this. In Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, and the Lord first spoke through Hosea. This is what the Lord said to Hosea. Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Um, I mean, I, I, I rip on bachelor and bachelorette. This isn't any better. Hosea, what I want you to do is go find a woman. I want you to marry this woman. And, and, and really, as he walks into that relationship, what he knows is this. That woman is going to break my heart. I mean, we don't know if, if Hosea was some hopeless romantic. We don't know if growing up Hosea had in his mind the picture of his, of his marriage where, where they would finish eating together and they would go on a long walk through the garden or if as they were drifting off to sleep, they would hold hands at night. I mean, we, we don't know what was going through his head, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't this type of marriage that we read about in Hosea chapter 1. He certainly didn't dream about waking up in the middle of the night alone and wondering where Gomer was as his children were crying. He certainly didn't imagine waking up and, and hoping that she would be there, but not being sure if she would be by the next morning. I mean, as you look at their relationship, 
adultery and promiscuity ran rampant through their marriage with Gomer continuing out. I mean, we see it even in the names of their children. Look at, look at um, let's see, the three kids are, are born, so we'll do that here in verse 3. He took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam. She conceived, she bore him a son. This is Hosea and Gomer's son. And the Lord said to him, I want you to call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now think about that for a second. God is saying, I want you to marry an adulterous woman. Okay, good. Now your first baby's born. I want you to name your kid Jezreel. To us, that means nothing. But here, let me put it in our connotation. Let's say you have a child and God says, good, I want you to name your child Columbine. So every time you call your child's name, people who don't know you are like, are you crazy? You named your kid Columbine? After one of the greatest disasters of young people in America, you, you, you are a sick individual. Jezreel was well known for the, the drama and the violence that occurred at it. God said, I want you to name your son Jezreel so that people know that I'm serious. There will be judgment. What's interesting, and, and, and I actually just... I've studied Hosea before. I actually, this is the first time I picked this up. The wording of verse six is very specific. She conceived again and bore a daughter. There is no mention of Hosea there. See, back in verse three, she conceived and bore him a son. So we know Jezreel was Homer's baby, Homer. (laughs) I knew he was going to do that at least once. Hosea. We knew, (laughs) we knew, (laughs) well, it's a different kind of love story. Don't, sorry. All right, keep moving. Um, (laughs) I did. I I told my kids this week, I'm like, I'm going to do it. It's coming. We, We know that Jezreel is the child of both Hosea and Gomer. But the second child, this daughter, it's, it's attributed to just Gomer. The Lord said to him, I want you to call her name no mercy. It can mean no pity, no compassion. Because I am not going to have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord our God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So I want you to understand, even in your second child, every time you call her name, that's a terrible name. No mercy. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, Call this one not my people, not my family, not my kin, not mine, not my kid. Because you are not my people. So it seems that uh, Gomer continued running around while they were married. And so we don't, we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know the situation. We just know at one point, Hosea was then alone. Gomer had, had left. She had permanently left the marriage. 
So now his dreams, whatever they might have been, are smashed. His, his emptiness is, is complete. He had been abandoned. He had been betrayed. And now he is, is there. And, and now, now you have to ask yourself the question. Let's be people here for a minute. Let's not be, be Christians who are trying to give the right answer. Let's be real, okay? You have to ask yourself the question now. But, now he's better off. Now he doesn't have to wonder anymore. Now he doesn't have to wake up in the middle of the night and be like, where is she now? He doesn't have to deal with any of that drama anymore. Now he's, he's better off. And we don't know, maybe his, his friends came alongside him and said the same thing. Man, you're better off now. You know, enjoy your newfound single parenthood. This is going to be better for you. And you don't know, Hosea might have listened to them. He might have listened to them. You know, I'm, I'm probably better off for, for being alone. This is probably better off. Okay. But then, chapter 3 Verse 1, the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Go again, love that woman. All right, so what does that look like? I'm not sure of the whole timeline here, but at some point, word gets back to Hosea that Gomer has put herself in a very bad situation, and now she's being sold as someone's slave. What would you do? If you heard that a person like Gomer, who had hurt you so very badly, is now up for slavery, up for auction, and they're in a bad spot, what would your your mind do? I can tell you, okay, this is to my shame, probably. I'm out. I have done all that I could. But God calls Hosea to go to her. Can you imagine that for a second? Can you imagine uh, Hosea walking into the auction and what people were saying? Oh, her husband's here. So why is he here? I don't know. Does he look angry? Does he look jealous? Does he look sad? Is he embarrassed? Is he hurt? Is he, what, what, I mean, what, what, what is he? And the auctioneer begins and says, all right, who will give me 10 shekels? I'll give you 10 shekels. How about 11, 11, 12, 12, 12? And Hosea speaks up and shocks everybody. 15 shekels. Somebody in the corner, not to be outdone. Okay, I'll throw in some grain with that. Fine, 15 shekels and some grain and she's mine. Let's end it now. The gavel goes, Sold. Now, what is Hosea going to do with her? Verse 2, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a, homer and a letek of barley. I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You'll not play the whore or belong to another man, and I will be like this to you also. What he does is he goes to the auction, he, he purchases his wife back to himself, and he brings her home and says, you are mine, you're not going anywhere, and I swear my allegiance to you. What? Why does Gomer deserve that? What value does she bring to the relationship? What is she bringing to that marriage? And the answer is nothing, because it's not about Gomer. 
about Hosea. Hosea didn't purchase her to punish her. Hosea purchased her to redeem her. That's a hard picture, folks. But that is the picture of the book of Hosea. The Lord's love for his own is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. You think about it. It's the one that we need to be saved from is the very one who, who graciously saves us. The message of the book of Hosea is that God had every right to look at us and go, I'm out. Yet in our wanderings, in our rebellion, God purchased us, not with 15 shekels of silver and some grain. God purchased us with the the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The the one who we need to be saved from, the one who who rightly calls us out, the one who who certainly could look at us and and, and name every sin that we've committed and, 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 and tell us how we have violated him and how we have crushed his soul. The one who, who could judge us and still be considered righteous in doing so is the one who looked at us as we stood on the auction block and said, I want that one. And loved us and sent his son for us. So what do you do if you're, you're, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? You've never put your faith and trust in Christ. What, what do you do? When you come across this story, what do you do? How do you respond to this? It's simple. It's, it's admitting with your mouth the things that your life demonstrates every day. It's admitting that you're a sinner. It's admitting that, that, that in your, on your own and left to your own devices, you are going to find a way to commit treason against the God who created you. So it's admitting you're a sinner and believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he came to save you from your sins by taking your place on the cross. And it's confessing with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was put to death for your sins, that he gloriously rose from the grave three days later, and that you want him to be the Lord of your life. You want him to be the one who you are responsible to. You want him to be the one who you rely on and lean on to save you from your sins when you come into God's presence. Because apart from Christ, God would rightly judge you. Well, what if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? What if you're a follower of Christ and you have simply wandered away and you continue to live in your rebellion? What do you do now? Chapter 14 of Hosea lays it out, and I'm going to spend about 30 seconds on this. So listen fast. (laughs) Yeah. Starting in verse 1, chapter 14, he says this, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. He says, listen, are you, are you his child and you have stumbled? Then what I want you to do is I want you to return to him. How do I return to him? Look at verse 2. I want you to take with you words and return to the Lord. That means don't show up with a check thinking you could write it off. Take with you words in return to the Lord. And these are the words that you should be taking with you. And you should say this to him. Lord, please, take away all iniquity. Take away all of my sin. Accept what is good. Accept my, my humble admission of my guilt. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. I'm going to follow through with everything that I say to you, Lord. Verse 3. I, this is what I'm saying to you. This is the confession of my heart. Assyria cannot save us. Neither can our, horse, our war horses 
So I'm going to stop trusting in anyone and everyone else. I'm going to stop running to Assyria to protect me from Egypt. I'm going to stop running to Egypt to protect me from Assyria. I'm not going to rely on my own strength. I'm relying on nobody's strength, Lord. And we will no longer say to our sticks, oh God, because they're not God's. See, Lord, in you, the orphan finds mercy. That's the prayer of your heart if you need to return. In you, the orphan, the fatherless, finds a father. So is, is that going to work? Well, this is the word of God in verse 4. I am going to heal their apostasy then. I will hear their, heal their, their unfaithfulness as they come to me like this. I will love them freely. Because my anger has been turned away from them. I will be like dew to Israel. He'll blossom like the lily. He'll, not take, he'll take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots will spread out. His beauty will be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. None of that means anything to us. <laughs> Other than this. He comes to me. I will heal them of their unfaithfulness. I will love them as a father loves their child. I will remove my wrath for them. How did God do that in his son Jesus Christ? And then their lives are going to explode with newness because of the goodness of God the Father. Not because of anything you do. Not because of who you are. But because of what God has done for you and who Jesus Christ is. The Son of God who came to save us from our sins. Who lives forever seated on the right hand of God. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that in Jesus Christ, we have hope. Lord, I I am grateful for the precious message of the book of Hosea. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of your faithfulness and your goodness to us day after day after day. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.